failure of drug war is glaringly obvious to judges, cops, wardens, prosecutors, and millions more now calling for decriminalization, legalization, the end of prohibition. Let us investigate the century of lies. This is a century of lies. I'm glad you could be with us today. We will have as our guest today, Mr. Dean Kuypers. He's a reporter for the L.A. City Beat and author of the new book, Burning Rainbow Farm. I guess without too much further ado, let's go ahead and bring on our guest for the show, Mr. Dean Kuypers. Hi, Dean. Thanks for having me on today. Well, thank you, sir. Now, you work as a reporter. For yeah, the Los Angeles City Beat? Yeah, I handle the uh, the news editing here at that City Beat. We're a weekly newspaper in Los Angeles. Well, sir, it's uh, coming up on five years ago that um, a great tragedy befell the reform community, followed by a, uh, an even greater tragedy of September 11th. Tell us, please, about Rainbow Farm. Uh, Rainbow Farm was a pretty unique place. In uh, it, it was a, a place in southwest Michigan um, where a couple fellows named uh, Tom Croslin and Raleigh Rome, who are a gay couple, um, had bought themselves 52 acres of land uh, in a pretty rural uh, corner of the of the state. And uh, their their originally their purpose was just to have it as a little Shangri La for their their family. Uh, one of the guys had a, a son, young son. And uh, as a getaway, but um, they were both uh, sort of lightly involved in the marijuana issue, had been backing a few people in northwestern Indiana and uh, going to hemp festivals and that kind of thing. And uh, once they got on their farm, they decided this was the perfect place to have festivals. And uh, beginning in 95, they started having big uh, big shows there. And uh, they got quite sizable and, and were well-known all over the country. Um, uh, High Times Magazine declared that uh, Rainbow Farm was uh, one of the top 25 stoner vacation spots in the world at one point. Um, Tommy Chong would come out there and uh, Merle Haggard and Big Brother and the Holding Company, uh, bands like that, and, uh, you know, 5,000 people would show up to to uh, come out on the farm, listen to the speakers, smoke pot, um, but, and also support their ballot initiative that they had going in the state of Michigan to try to legalize weed there. Now, uh, Dean, the, I, I don't know how else to put this, but this was also um, a means, a, 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 a way for these people to stand for the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and to uh, stand up to the local authorities. But uh, that turned into uh, quite a, a situation as well, did it not? Sure, it sure did. Um, yeah, you, you've hit that right on the head. I mean, the constitutional issues were primary here. Um, Unlike, well, your, your listeners are probably well aware of this, but unlike what a lot of uh, the, the U.S. Uh, believes, um, a lot of the folks, uh, the drug war and resistance to the drug war is very, very important to a lot of people who are strict uh, constitutional constitutionalists and libertarians and uh, and a great number of uh, folks on both sides, right and the left. Um, and... These guys had a pretty unique uh, group of, of folks out there. Uh, they were gay, but they had made some money, and they voted Republican, believe it or not, and uh, were libertarians. And the people who came on their farm were just a wide variety, a lot of libertarian folks, uh, Democrats, hippies, evangelicals, Michigan militia people. I mean, you name it, from one end to the next. A pretty much a rural blue-collar crowd. 
and uh, that really reflected that area. I mean, they were basically the neighbors. Um, and in uh, their festival started going, and in 1998, the local prosecutor there uh, decided he had to put an end to this because it, mostly just because a bunch of people would go out there and smoke weed on this private property. And he started sending letters. He sent one letter saying that he would uh, pursue uh, forfeiture as a remedy if he could to take their farm if he would if he could get a felony for anyone uh, selling drugs or using drugs or possessing the right amount of drugs on that farm. And, and, uh, and that was the conflict. That's where it started right there. And Tom had made all his money in real estate, and, and doing anything to take his farm was tantamount to you know a declaration of war. And uh, Dean, uh, you you bring up a very compelling point. It uh, this situation is kind of representative of the drug war itself. The uh, the local officials seeing potential from seizing those assets, uh, being outraged at. Uh, marijuana smoking, which uh, in in and of itself is not harming anyone else, and and it's just a means whereby they can, uh, you know, postulate or, or or bring forward their authority to seize this property, to destroy these lives, to steal uh, the 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 son Robert, to uh, take their assets. It's it's a microcosm of the drug war itself yes indeed yeah and as you you probably know in the, the late 90s especially the forfeiture issue was uh, huge uh, all over this country but michigan was one of the places where they were doing it a lot it was a way that a prosecutor who was involved in a sticky situation like this i mean this is these guys were activists uh, so their, their, their smoking was a protest, but they were also, you know, what he, all he saw there was crime, and the way he could deal with the whole thing is just take the property and just eliminate the entire problem by eliminating the actual place. Um, this was pretty standard practice, uh, for a situation like this. Um, and, uh, and, and, and you're exactly right. That's, that's the, this treatment of them as criminals and the sort of scorched earth policy of, uh, using every law at their disposal, you know, every law in their heavy tool bag to to wipe these guys out was exactly what Tom and Raleigh were protesting against. They wanted some dialogue. They wanted there to be some kind of change in the mindset of people to come and see them, to come and see what they do, come and talk to them, uh, be it, you know, welcome them as a part of the community who has some valid points to make, but instead uh you know once they crossed uh what seemed like a very thin line the uh, prosecutor said nope that's it you're a criminal and uh, we're just going to obliterate you um he was waiting for a long time for a felony and uh, because really the only thing that was going on out there was misdemeanor pot smoking on the part of Tom and Raleigh and they were very careful about that uh but in 2001 they grew some weed in their basement of their farmhouse and uh, exactly what you said, the uh, prosecutor came in. He knew he had them then. He came in on a tax warrant, found the weed, um, put you know immediately put those guys in jail and uh, seized, uh, filed for forfeiture on the farm, but most importantly took their son, who was very well cared for, a young man, and uh, put him in foster care. And uh, Tom actually never did see him again. The, the outrage of it all that... Uh people's lives should be so destroyed now i i want to uh talk about the resolution i mean i understand there was a second autopsy being done and that there were um you know have all the check marks been 
ticked? Is this a closed case? Are, are there any pending uh, uh, lawsuits? There, there are some pending things. I'll just tell you, give you the brief rundown. Sort of what happened is in uh, August of that 2001, August 31st, Labor Day weekend. Uh, Tom and Raleigh, instead of going to their first court date, since they knew the farm would be seized, they just didn't go in. Uh, they burned their farm down, except for the farmhouse, and they had quite extensive properties. They burned the place to the ground, and they sat there, and they were armed. Uh, they had decided that this was become something of a revolutionary call for them. So in the last couple of weeks, they picked up guns and sat there and waited, and um, it turned into a standoff. Uh, the FBI came in uh, the next day, and uh, for a couple of days, not much happened, except uh, one of the farmhands went back and forth carrying messages. But uh, on uh, Monday morning, September 3rd, Tom, uh, with his gun, went to the neighbor's house to pick up a coffee pot. And on his way back with a coffee pot, encountered three snipers in, in, a, in his woods who immediately jumped up and uh, shot him in the forehead uh, and killed him. Uh, the next day, Raleigh made a deal where he would, if he could see his boy, if they'd bring the boy out there, uh, he would give himself up at 7 a.m. the next morning. He was the only guy left at that point. And uh, at 6 a.m., somehow, we're not exactly sure how, uh, the farmhouse was also on fire, and Raleigh was running around in the backyard with the dog and his gun. And as a uh, armored vehicle rolled up on him, uh, he went into some kind of crouching position, they say, because only Michigan State police officers saw this because they were on, du- on, on duty then. And uh, as he went into a crouching position, a sniper in the, off in the tree line uh, took him out. Now there there have been there's actually been three autopsies on Raleigh. Um, there were a few anomalies, and uh, no, they haven't all been settled. There's some question about angles of shot and how sort of the forensics don't quite match up with certain stories that were told by the shooters. And uh, there is a wrongful death case about that that is going forward. I believe the government has made several motions to get rid of this lawsuit, but the judge keeps waving it forward, and uh, so we'll probably see some kind of answers down the line. I I want to uh, commend this book. I think um, it, it, it is a very personal in-depth look at these folks. You, you got a chance to speak to a couple of the guests I've had on my show, Greg Schmidt, Doug Lineback, but many others. You're able to uh, flesh out who Tom and Raleigh were, uh, what they stood for, who, who, who they worked with, and, and what they sought to accomplish. And and I, I think folks should give it a read. The, the full title, Burning Rainbow Farm, How a Stoner Utopia Went Up in Smoke. Uh, we're speaking with the author, Dean Kuypers. This book is published by bloomsbury press uh let me ask you dean you have spent quite a bit of time with these folks is there still a spark is there still part of the rainbow farm spirit of life oh sure yeah a lot of the people who when tom and raleigh declared that they were going to make the place a you know a pot friendly campground their place was a, a working campground and concert venue uh, a lot of the people who were already active in the state kind of took up with it so um, you know, there's people from Michigan Normal and uh, a Cannabis Action Network and a bunch of different folks who were, you know, who were already involved, and they're still involved. Um, and there were people who learned about activism, really, from Rainbow Farm. It was one of the only places around you could do things like that in, in that corner of the state, or in the state of Michigan at all, really. 
and uh, they, they have decided to carry on. Um, there is no actual Rainbow Farm entity, and nobody's looking to remake that place, really. But they've moved on to other locations, um, and they're you know people are pretty scared. Or they they have been scared. I mean, look what happened to their friends. But slowly, they come back to activism, and uh, I I've heard you know rumblings of of different uh, events and festivals that may be kind of cropping up here over the next couple of years. Oh, uh, Dean, uh, I want to ask you. I, I, I recall this this one section in the book here that uh, really caught my attention. It talks about the fact that uh, uh, we have I, I don't know how else to put it. Uh, hillbillies got loose in Indiana. Them boys will give you the shirt off your back, but don't think you can push them into a corner and just keep pushing. These these guys were standing up for American rights and just weren't going to be pushed any further, would they? Yeah, that's right. I mean, this, like I said before, this forfeiture thing was rampant. It's, it's been scaled back a little bit since this time, but, uh, it, they were, um, it was pretty standard practice that if the police, you know, in, in Wayne County caught you with a, uh, uh, joint in your car, that they might just take your car. And, you know, even if it was worth 25 bucks or whatever, they would take it. And that, that was going on so much that, um, or take your wedding ring or take the cash out of your wallet or that kind of thing i mean these stories were well documented um th that was going on so much it seemed inevitable that eventually somebody just regular guys like tom and raleigh were going to push back i mean it just it just strains credulity and, and it strains the the relationship of the police with the community to think that that can just go on without somebody saying i care so much about that uh, you know, I'll 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 go to the wall for it. I'll lay my life down for it, so that somebody else might not have to. And they did. That's it's exactly the issue that set them off. Uh, another section that that really caught my attention. It was following their first use of a graphic of a marijuana leaf on their their literature, their uh, promotional distribution. That it really began to ratchet up. Is it as simple as that? Is it too much rubbing their nose in it of the, of the authorities that that helped to escalate this situation? Sure. Yeah. 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 Well, uh, you, as you can imagine, having three to five thousand people out on your farm uh, is who are you know ostensibly there to smoke weed and make a statement is really putting it in the face of. A local, you know, pretty straight uh, prosecutor who really wants, you know, he's really quite black and white and really wants the law to be upheld to the letter. Um, he just couldn't deal with that. And, yeah, it, you know, Tom, early on when he owned the farm, uh, one of the first years he was there, he was raided on a hot tip, you know, with a police just show up out of nowhere because they got a tip somehow that you were growing weed on the land. He wasn't. And they marched, state police showed up and marched all over his property and found nothing. And uh, when they left, he was pretty mad. He was pretty hopping mad, and he said, "You know, that's it. Like if they're they want, you know, weed uh, to be an issue on this farm, I'm going to make it an issue, and we're going to have weed festivals, and we're going to have you know hemp festivals, and make that our our stated purpose." So you know, Tom was maybe headed that way anyways, but uh, these random uh, searches and prosecutions really pushed him in that direction. And I, I think that's uh, symptomatic of many of the problems with the drug war that uh, people bothering no one, uh, harming no one other than themselves who are badgered and bullied about uh, tend to get an attitude. Tend, sure. to, tend to think that, uh, well, if, you, if I'm already a criminal, screw you guys. Here, look at this. Um, 
We're running out of time here. Uh, once again, we're speaking with Dean Kuypers, the author of Burning Rainbow Farm. Any closing thoughts? Yeah, you know, the, I mean, the interesting thing about this uh, this whole story and what made me really want to write about it was the community that was there. I mean, we have an idea that's promulgated in the media about, you know, sort of who drug users are and what and what the, dr the drug war was designed to battle. You know, it's big drug dealers and kingpins and Colombian drug lords and people flying around in helicopters with machine guns and so forth. But that's not, you know, what happens. It, it, what happens is they bust the, the neighbors in rural places like Vandalia, Michigan, where Rainbow Farm was. And so many of them, you know, 800,000 potheads a year get busted that uh, in Rainbow Farm, you know, it was a place, a rural place where they came out of the woodwork to make a statement. And that's pretty rare. I mean, that's that's the kind of place where people were not that politically active on a lot of issues. But weed was one issue that really brought them out. They feel that they're really under fire there. Well, and aren't we all across this country as long as they maintain this reefer madness? Sure, absolutely. Well, uh, once again, we were speaking with Dean Kuypers, author of Burning Rainbow Farm. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Dean. I appreciate it. Terry Michael, director of the Washington Center for Politics and Journalism, had a letter published recently in the Washington Times. Yes, it was actually a, an op-ed column on the op-ed page of the Washington Times, which in itself was quite unusual because people who know about the Washington Times know that it's a very conservative newspaper, so it was a little unusual to have a full case made against the drug war in a conservative newspaper, but I, I chose it specifically as a target because I wanted to talk to conservatives. However, I believe that liberals and the conservatives are equally dangerous to liberty on this subject. We have, as I pointed out in this piece, which I headed an open letter to Senator Orrin Hatch, stop the reefer madness here, as well as in Dubai. The fact is, liberals and conservatives claiming they want to protect our children are really infringing on individual liberty of adults. And I said in this piece I wanted to uh, lay out the case against the drug war and get Senator Hatch to consider his support for the drug war since he recently, about two weeks ago, figuratively speaking, bailed out a record producer who was facing four years of jail in Dubai in the United Arab Emirates for holding about an ounce of cocaine. Senator Orrin Hatch of Utah um, argued when he responded to press inquiries about why he did this that he doesn't believe in mandatory minimums. But the truth is he was bailing out an individual in the recording industry which Senator Hatch has some relationships to because he's a songwriter as well as a senator. So I laid out the case noting six different ways in which the drug war harms the American people. First of all, the drug war denies individual liberty. Our drug war constitutes an assault on individual liberty, privacy, and choice from both the left and the right. Liberals will fight to the death for a woman's right to abortion, and conservatives will go to the ramparts to defend gun owners. But both of them agree to throw into prison an adult who smokes dried leafy vegetation. With impunity, we can drink ourselves stupid, and we can destroy our lungs with tobacco, and I support the right to be people to be stupid, <laughs> but using a recreational substance as old as wine will get us jailed. Secondly, I pointed out that the drug war is a waste of our treasury. 
people have estimated someplace between 40 and 70 billion dollars at all levels of government for this insane attack on liberty. When our resources ought to be directed at lawful constitutional attempts to keep dangerous, politicized, religious fanatics out of this country, we spend tens of billions of dollars futilely trying to interdict chemicals, most of which, in moderation, are no more harmful to the human body than alcohol and tobacco. And many of them, example marijuana, is le are less harmful to the human body. Third, I argued to Senator Hatch, we are cre creating government-induced violent black market. Alcohol didn't create Al Capone. Prohibition created Al Capone. With the mayhem, the official corruption and the murder that accompanied the 18th Amendment until it was repealed. Cocaine does not create drug cartels. America's war on drugs creates drug cartels. Fourth, I argue that government is being engaging in violence against our own people. We all know about the instances of drug enforcers, the DEA, out-of-control local sheriff's offices, going in with guns blazing not just taking the life and the liberty and the property of those who work in this government-stimulated black market, they've racked up untold collateral damage, maiming and killing innocent bystanders. In fact, the Cato Institute did some a really good booklet recently um, called Overkill, The Rise of Paramilitary Police Raids in America, which I would urge anyone to go to Cato.org and take a look at that. Fifth of my six arguments was that the drug war is promoting disrespect for the rule of law. Millions of Americans are scoffing at the China-like oppressiveness of the war on drugs. Our policies are undermining respect for the rule of law and for our democratic policy-making institutions. As the drug warriors clog our courts and they fill our jails, we disrupt the lives of the poor and the powerless who can't afford crafty lawyers and who have no political connections like the man had with Senator Hatch. And finally, and I think this may be most important, the drug war is responsible for health harm creation. Our policy is creating untold health harm to millions, and this particularly affects the kind of young people I work with, college-age students. We educate them from the time they're kids about the responsible use of two potentially very dangerous but legal substances, but we try our best to keep them from learning about the real effects and side effects of other psychoactives. In fact, the drug warriors virtually lie about the effects of other psychoactives. Hundreds of thousands of people die each year from the short and long-term health damage of alcohol and tobacco. Nobody succumbs to marijuana, and remarkably few die from other legal drugs. So those were the six cases I made, and I purposefully wanted to select a venue where I could lay out the coherent case against this drug war because you just don't see it coherently done very often because most newspapers simply will not publish it. But we've got to take these things out of the shadows with decriminalization and I support legalization and stop spending billions on interdiction and punishment and start spending that money a little of it on education on harm reduction and whenever it's needed addiction treatment addiction treatment's not always needed just as it's not needed from tens of millions of people who use alcohol but a relatively small percentage of people will need it and that's where our focus ought to be i think that these drug warriors 
in their cutting off the supplies of softer drugs like marijuana or things like uh, ecstasy, they're pushing thousands of people to try what I call the bathtub gen of neo-prohibitionism, crystal methamphetamine. And a lot of people are really victims of that because these drug warriors are, are getting at the softer drugs. Well, once again, we've been speaking with Mr. Terry Michael. He's the director of the Washington Center for Politics and Journalism. Your website, Terry? My website is simply terrymichael.net. This is Phil Smith with this week's Corrupt Cop Story for the Drug Truth Network. This week we're going to Miami, where three Boston police officers were arrested last Thursday after taking $35,000 to protect a cocaine shipment in an FBI sting operation. Ringleader Robert Polito and fellow officers Carlos Pizarro and Nelson Carrasquillo traveled to Miami to celebrate their drug protection deal and plot more deals with undercover narcs they thought were cocaine traffickers. Instead, they were arrested, the Associated Press reported. Polito allegedly got into a variety of criminal activities with his junior partners sometimes joining in. Those offenses include protecting drug shipments, identity theft, sponsoring illegal after-hours parties with prostitutes, money laundering, and insurance fraud, according to prosecutors. The trio are in jail awaiting an August 2nd removal hearing. Also this week, we have a deputy cop pulverine meth, another prison guard dealing dope, a Texas Drug Task Force commander copying a plea for protecting traffickers, and a St. Louis cop going to prison for doing the same. Check them all out online at www.stopthedrugwar.org. And now for another black perspective on the drug war. A listener asked me the other day if I would allow someone who smoked marijuana to babysit my daughter. She went on to explain that what she was interested in and what she wanted to hear more about on Century of Lies and Cultural Baggage is how using cannabis affects a person's performance and judgment and what studies have been done in this regard. Thanks to the war on drugs, researchers in America have a very hard time getting government permission to study cannabis. And when they do, and the results contradict the official drug war propaganda, their results are often suppressed. But the British did a study worth noting. They were studying the effects of cannabis on driving. They found that cannabis, like alcohol, does slow a person's reactions. But, unlike alcohol, drivers smoking cannabis were aware of their impairment and compensated for it by slowing down and driving more carefully. Now, this is not to say that smoking pot improves one's driving. Not at all. But it does suggest that one's judgment is not severely impaired. And many users report a beneficial effect on creativity and mental focus. But to the main question, there are precious few people whom I would trust with my baby daughter. But all else being equal, would I entrust my daughter's safety to a babysitter whom I knew smoked marijuana? Yes, I would. And since marijuana is not addictive, I would also trust that that person would not use it while on the job. Now, this is something that I cannot say about someone whose drug of choice is alcohol. And I say this because the worst shock of my life was the day that I came home to find my infant daughter alone and unattended in a bathtub in six inches of ice-cold water. And her babysitter was passed out drunk on the sofa. I'll be speaking more in the coming weeks about marijuana and its effects on the individual. But for now, for the Drug Truth Network, this is Phil Jackson. I want to thank our reporters. Uh, they always do such great work. Um, people believe, at least they want to believe, religiously, politically, 
morally, ethically. They want to believe that the leaders in place are good and decent people who firmly embrace the truth and who work accordingly to build a more civilized and progressive society. The vast majority of those in legislative lockstep, Democrat or Republican, on both the state and federal level, write unnecessary and unconstitutional laws on behalf of their corporate masters in exchange for campaign contributions of less than a dollar on the legislative theft of their constituents' future. Scientists and doctors, attorneys, cops and judges who through their daily exposure to the evil wrought by drug prohibition and who yet managed to stifle their revulsion to this ongoing scam for a paycheck do not deserve one moment's respect. I believe in truth, reality, and common sense. I believe prohibition is a great evil. I believe it's time to end the drug war. Uh, please listen to this week's Cultural Baggage Show. Our guest is Professor Arnold S. Trebeck. He's a drug uh, reform pioneer. He's author of the brand new book, Fatal Distraction, The War on Drugs in the Age of Islamic Terror. But uh, once again, I remind you, there is no truth, justice, logic, scientific fact, or medical data involved. We've been duped. Please do your part. Prohibido is Doc Ivalesco. For the Drug Truth Network, this is Dean Becker asking you to examine our policy of drug prohibition. The Century of Lies. The show produced at the Pacifica Studios of KPFT, Houston.